I'm going to read to you the first verse or two from Hebrews 11, and then we'll skip down to verse 13. It says this, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. Verse 13, these all died in faith. Who's he speaking about? Well, up to this point, he's just told us a little bit about some of the early heroes of faith in the very early first pages of the Bible. Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham and Sarah. Legendary sort of people in Bible terms. He says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of that land from which they'd gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared for them a city. I want to ask you, what do you think is the most dangerous thing that a Christian can face? Dangerous in terms of your faith, in terms of your walk with God. I think we obviously could think of a few massive possible answers to that. One of them might be persecution. You know, when Christians suffer for their faith and you know, Jesus warned that it would be damaging, it could hurt people, but we also know that Persecution has an amazing galvanizing effect on Christians and parts of the world or individuals who, who learn to put their roots down more deeply into God. It can have the very opposite effect to what's intended. Well, what about temptation? I know that all of us face temptations on a daily basis. And temptation is certainly a huge thing that we have to face in life. But it's also quite an obvious enemy when you face it. You know, usually you're aware that you're being you're experiencing temptation. You know what you're dealing with. And you're able to come to God in prayer and experience growth in your walk with God as you learn to say no to stuff you would otherwise have said yes to. And you, you feel the grace of God in that transforming experience as you grow in maturity from stage to stage in your life. And what about prosperity? Also, one of the things that we see in the Bible is the danger of when people get a little bit too much at ease and too prosperous and certainly you see it in your own life at times how we can grow more and more um, slack in our walk with God the more we, we grow comfortable in life. And I certainly think it can be a danger but the, obviously the other side to it is it's also a blessing. God gives prosperity and he also allows us to use it for the sake of his kingdom. So it's very much a mixed thing. So I want to suggest to you that I think one of the most dangerous things that a Christian can face in terms of their faith is actually something much more subtle than the things we've named above. And it's the problem of disappointment. The problem of missed expectations and hopes uh, when it comes to your experience of walking with God over years. The reason why I think this is so dangerous is for a number of reasons. One is because you think about what, what, is, what is the heart of the Christian faith? And it is faith itself. It's the ability to, to put your faith into God and say, I, I believe and trust in you above everything in life. And the trouble with disappointment is that it can be like a, an eroding power in the very foundations of your knowledge of God and your walk with God. So when Christians experience disappointment, it can actually be something very destructive to their basic relationship with, with, a, with God as Father. 
I also think that because it can cause this, this unbelief, this sense of not trusting God, even an unconscious, in an unconscious way, but you, you maybe don't trust him, don't pray as much, or don't expect as much from God, it can give birth to cynicism. And Christians who have allowed cynicism to, to begin to take root in their hearts and take hold of their lives are in a very dark place. And also that disappointment can push us in the very opposite direction to faith. If faith is abandonment to God, saying, I trust you entirely with everything I am and everything I have. When you begin to pull back from God because you're not sure that he's trustworthy through disappointments, the opposite of faith is control and self-governance, like leading yourself, autonomy, independence from God rather than dependence. Which is, of course, the, the very opposite stance that a Christian is supposed to have in life, that we're called to be totally trusting. But disappointment can cause us to turn around and almost repent of our repentance and, and turn away from God in, in autonomy. And I also say that it can give birth to idolatry. If God is the one who calls us to trust him entirely as a good father and God, when that relationship begins to be damaged by disappointment, we turn to other means of finding satisfaction and joy and security and fulfillment, and we turn to idols. Comforts, relationships, people, or money, or possessions, or whatever it is that you find a particular sense of being pulled towards, your gravity towards, as your kind of comfort blanket in life or your idol, the thing that you worship that t- can take the place of God. Disappointment, then, I think is a very subtle and potent enemy in the Christian life. And Christian as well, it just doesn't seem to have an upside. You know, other dangers that you face, persecution, temptation, prosperity, all the ones I mentioned and others, they often have a flip side to them where you think, well, God can bring us through it stronger and more powerful in Christ. Disappointment doesn't seem to be like that. It seems to be unrelentingly negative. We've got to begin there today. Hopefully it's going to get better. But I want us to wrestle with this question because a lot of what we're doing when we're looking through Hebrews 11 is we're looking at heroes of faith and a lot of what he he talks about is so much that's positive in their lives. But here we're coming to face this question, well, how did these heroes, these same people that we honor, how did they face disappointments in life and keep trusting in God? And how do we? So crucial to ask that when you think that All of your weaknesses you experience in your Christian life have to do with a lack of trust in God. All of them are rooted there somewhere. So we have to ask the question, what is it that destroys our faith in God and how do we deal with it? And I want to give you three answers. They really just come from the first verse, from verse 13. But we're going to open up some of the other verses as well. But let me tell you the first thing. First way in which God allows us to cope with it is this. You must acknowledge... First of all, the bare fact that God allows you to face disappointments in the Christian life. In his providence, in his sovereignty, in his control of your life and its circumstances, he allows and even ordains that you face situations that you wouldn't choose for yourself that are disappointing, deflating. Think about how he begins. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. 
I think we're meant to be taken aback slightly by what he says there, because as soon as you start to meditate on that, it strikes you as an odd statement. It feels almost like a contradiction, doesn't it? Isn't this the proof that their faith was wrong all along? That they died in faith not having received the things promised? Doesn't it mean that their faith was totally mistaken and misguided to begin with? What is faith and what's the point in faith if you can die without receiving what God's promised? I think that this is here very deliberately to correct our misunderstandings of how faith works. To sweep aside wrong notions of how faith works and to help us to see how faith can work even in the darkest times in life. Why is that an important thing for the writer to do for us? Well, think of it like this. If you, if you, tend to, if you think of faith as always getting what you believe for and to be the best thing that God has for you, if that's your understanding of how faith works and what faith accomplishes, when you hit disappointments, and you will, they cause a jolt to your system. You ever had that experience where you're walking along in the dark or maybe just not paying attention and uh, you don't see a step in front of you, a downward step, and there's that split second when your foot goes over the ledge and you don't find the ground beneath you. When your whole body just like, you just have this burst of adrenaline. It feels like time has just stood still. But there's nothing you can do because in a moment you're going to hit the ground. And as you hit it, it sends a jolt right through your system. That's the experience that Christians have when they don't understand that there's a place for disappointment, suffering, loss, these kinds of things in the Christian life. That you can die in faith not having received the things promised. There are a couple of times when we've seen this firsthand with people we've known and loved. There was a pastor in, in an old city in Winchester who, you know, at a young age, I think he was probably 40s, maybe 50s, in his mid-50s, he, he had cancer, terminal cancer. And he suffered with this cancer for a season and it got progressively worse and worse. And he saw... Medical help, of course, but then he also sought the help of, you know, there was a renowned preacher who'd prayed for many people and seen them healed of extraordinarily bad diseases. And he'd gone to seek prayer for healing. And we believe in healing. But his understanding of faith was that you have to not allow any room for the possibility that this cancer could win. And so right up to the moment where he passed away, and he did pass away, he and his family had no room for, for doubt that he, could, that he would recover. So when he did die, their hearts were ripped out. We had a, some friends of ours, a couple who um, were young, and the wife was just expecting the first child. And the husband also had cancer. And this was just the year Sian and I got married. And uh, throughout his sickness, there was that same determination. Now, faith is always believing and not allowing any room for doubt that the best thing is going to happen. This can't be something that God would allow or will. Even to the point beyond where he died, my wife went to the funeral and there he was being laid in the ground 
And it was only as they put, began throwing the mud on the coffin that suddenly there was an acknowledgement. He's died. And that was it. He's not coming back. You can imagine how that knocks you sideways like a jolt to your system when your understanding of faith is a misguided one, that you think faith is trusting God that he will always give you the thing you most desire in life. The people who preach that, Christians who seek to live that, what happens when disappointments hit you, it begins to erode the very foundations of your relationship with God because they were built incorrectly. It throws up a problem for us, doesn't it? If faith is the expectation of God's faithfulness to us, it's believing in him, saying, I trust you to be good. How can we have faith in God whilst also understanding that life will involve disappointments, ordained by and allowed by God? Don't those two things contradict one another? How can you expect God for good things and prepare for bad things? I think the answer is to get back to what faith really is at its core. The faith is not somehow bending God's arm and claiming what you want from him. Faith is actually releasing and trusting him entirely. So faith that is dependent on your circumstances, contingent on good things happening to you in life, and only good things, is a faith that's back to front. Your faith should not be built on life and its circumstances. Your faith should be the other way around, built on God and his goodness, which prepares you in trust to face all that life has, the good and the bad, to trust him for wonderful things, and he does want to do great things in our lives, but also to be prepared when he allows us to experience heartbreak and disappointments and loss and all kinds of things. These all died not having received the things promised. What about us? Friends, we're going to experience things in life that you will question and wonder. Why, Lord? You'll have prayers that seem to have gone unanswered. Longings that were unfulfilled. Sometimes longings for what God, you felt God wanted to do with your life. Or longings for a spouse and maybe you'll never have one, or for children, and not, you can't consider them a right, and sometimes God doesn't allow us to have children. We can experience disappointments and sickness, and unexpected sicknesses that seem to come too early, and take people when they're too young, hopes that are deferred, and failures, things that you'd hoped would be a success and were not. And you, you, you question why. Your church can let you down. The first thing I think we have to do is be confronted by this bare fact that God allows us to face disappointments. Let me tell you a second thing. I think you must see that the bigger plan of God that is greater than your circumstances. Think about Abraham. He's the most near example just before we've uh, read this passage. Abraham, the, f- the first Hebrew, the father of all the Jewish people, the first one. And what does God say to him? He calls him and says, I'm going to make you 
I'm going to bless you and I'm going to let the world be blessed through you. I'm going to multiply you so that you have as many children as the sand on the seashore, the stars in the sky, and I'm going to give you a land. These are the promises that God opens up to this man Abraham, who's this Iraqi um, sort of probably livestock keeper in the Mesopotamia, in the Middle East. And then he, he moves to Canaan and he lives in tents. That's what we've been told. And what happens to Abraham? He, the only thing that he sees come to fulfillment in all that God tells him is he has one son by his wife, Sarah, Isaac. That's all he sees. He dies still living in a tent, not owning the land. He doesn't have descendants as many as the sand on the seashore, as many as the stars in the sky. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. So my question to you is, do you think that Abraham's faith was wasted given all that he didn't see happen in his life? And obviously the answer is no. The obvious answer is no, because as soon as we look at what God did after he died... We see the ultimate results of his faith, which is a world that is still being shaped and changed by it through the influence of his descendants and his belief in the one God. When we see the ultimate results of his faith, we cannot conclude that his faith was wasted, can we? Even though his influence was tiny at the moment he died. A couple of angles from which we can approach this. Our hindsight and foresight. With hindsight, we have the wonderful benefit when we look back on Abraham's faith and we see things that he, he couldn't have seen in the way we do. The descendants that are multiplying and are still multiplying when you include, as Romans, the book of Romans does, his spiritual descendants, Christians, brought into the family of God. When we see that God gave them a land and now that God, through Jesus, is giving them the giving Abraham the whole earth. We look back with hindsight, you read your Bible, you understand the story, and you can say God was true to his promises to the letter. There is not one of these promises that has fallen to the ground unfulfilled. And anyone who knows the biblical story and sees how God is still working it out in history has to come to the conclusion God is faithful and honors those people who have faith. That's a wonderful perspective that we can have on this whole thing when we have the benefit of hindsight. The other angle, of course, is Abraham's angle, where he had to exercise foresight. He had to believe for things that he never saw happen when he, gave, when he, he died and his, his last breath left his body. And this is what the, the writer tells us here. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. Which is harder? Foresight or hindsight? It's obviously much harder to believe God for things that have yet to happen than things that have already happened. (laughs) Foresight is much, much harder. But you notice how he speaks about Abraham's foresight and these people of faith, their foresight. It's It's putting almost in like a past tense. He died having seen these things and greeted them from afar as though they've already taken place even though they're going to take place centuries and millennia in the future. He died having seen them and it's put in like a past tense. Having seen it, it's it's already happened. 
It hasn't, not in real terms, but it has in my heart, in my mind, in what I see God doing in the future through his promise. And in fact, it's so amazing how the writer uses that word see, because you remember how the chapter started. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. But then he says about Abraham and his faith, and these people, that they, they died having seen them. So there's obviously two ways to see, aren't there? There's the things that you see with your eyes, which for Abraham was one son and nothing else. But then there's what you see with your eyes of faith. What God enables you to see through faith. Having seen them and greeted them from afar. Everything that God promises will come to fruition and will come true. So their faith was more real than the present loss and distress. Which is why when you read the Bible and you read about the heroes of faith in this chapter, many of them will face circumstances that would try the best of us. He concludes the chapter talking about people who have been rejected and sawn in two and faced lions and, and done all the experience immense suffering. And, he said, and he's saying of these people, they still believed. Because with their eyes of faith, they can see as though it's already happened. God will be true, even if my present circumstances are not the ones I would choose for myself. For us, what this means is finding refuge in the character of God and his plan that he's working out on a much grander scale than just you and your life. Think about this. What is it that you're most hoping for and praying for and believing God to do in and through you and for you? What is it that you you have most set your heart upon in life? What happens if those things do not come to pass? You experience those unanswered prayers, those disappointments. You never get what you'd hope that God will give to you. What do you feel? How do you react in that situation? What does it do to your your faith and your, your walk with God? Now for some, I think it has destroyed people's faith when they experience disappointments conclude all kinds of things about God. Maybe that he's a liar. Maybe that he's just far away and uninterested. Maybe that he's begrudging and unkind, doesn't want to give you good things. Sometimes that, it's, that he's deaf to your prayers or that you know, he's punishing you. People come to all kinds of conclusions about God when they experience suffering, disappointment, loss. What would happen to you if the things you most hope for in life, you don't come to see happen. Faith says, I trust you. I trust your greater plan than my circumstances. I trust that you're at work in ways that will not ultimately disappoint. I think that's how Abraham died. So we've got to allow these two perspectives to work on our, on our side. We can't have hindsight about our own lives, but we can have hindsight when we look at the scriptures and the way God's worked through history. And we can come to the conclusion again and again, God is faithful. But we can also have foresight 
Because even if you can't have absolute certainty about the ways that God is going to use you or bless you or the security you want in life or the health you want, all these kinds of things, you can have certainty regarding God's plan in history. What he's going to do to glorify his son Jesus in the earth. And ultimately, you experience, in that certainty, you experience that your own disappointments melt into insignificance in contrast with the greater plan that it's about Jesus and his glory. He's going to see it fulfilled. And I'd also say, to a lesser extent, but to still to some extent, you can have certainty regarding the leadings, the guidance that God has given you in your own heart about your own life. Faith looks like that. Whether it's prophetic or whether you feel that God's led you to something or given you a leading on where he's taking you. You can have a degree of certainty about those things. This foresight. But ultimately, like Abraham, like these heroes, we've got to rest in the bigger plan of God that's far bigger than we can comprehend or understand. He died, Abraham died. He had no concept really of how it was going to be fulfilled. He just knew it would be, and it was. Here's the last thing. You need to set your heart on a more permanent hope than this life. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. I think most of our troubles with disappointment come down to our failure to grasp this above everything. That our lives are bigger than just our present circumstances, that it's about eternity. Let me put this to you in, in a positive and a negative way so you just grasp what we're trying to get here. Think about your deepest hopes again. Are most of your hopes a kind of bucket list inventory of things that you want to see happen for you, to you, in you, in your experience, in your lifetime before you die? Are most of our hopes pinned on what we want to see accomplished or what we want to receive or have in this life before we die? They are, aren't they? Most of the things we pray for, most of the things we set our passion upon, our desire on, is consumed with, with life as we know it now. Before death. It's bucket list hopes, aren't they? Or if you flip that around and look at it negatively. When you think about your deepest fears, what are your deepest fears? I think for most of us, most of our deepest fears and worries and anxieties are to do with the ways life here and now can go wrong. The ways that our life before we die the sufferings we might face or the loss we might face or the disappointments we might face here and now. And what does this tell us when we think about our hopes, when we think about our fears? Doesn't it tell us that our heads and our hearts are altogether too much in this life? These heroes of faith were able to keep their heads up because they were, what he tells us here is that they were heavenly minded. Their hearts and their heads were not stuck on just what they were to see and experience in this life, that they were, their eyes were lifted actually to something beyond this life. I want you to just meditate on what this means because it, it means a negative thing and a positive thing. Negatively, 
it entails a kind of detachment from the things of this world. What does it say in verse 13? It says, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. It's a certain detachment, isn't it, from the world in which we live and the life that we're living. Not an unhealthy one, but a detachment nonetheless. The previous, when my, my parents went to Westminster Chapel, the previous minister was a guy called Artie Kendall. And my parents went to move into the manse that he'd been living in for over 20 years with his wife Louise. And they'd bought, the church had bought this in the 1980s, a flat over in, in Victoria. And in the entire time, the Kendalls had done nothing to decorate the place. <laughs> it, and my mum asked, well, why, why not? Why, why, why didn't you sort of do it up? I mean, the church would have paid for that. And Louise Kendall just said, well, we were always going to go back to America next year. <laughs> They're from America, and they'd live, every year, year after year, they'd live with that expectation. We're actually just going to go home next year. So there's no point giving time energy to this place. And it's like living with your bags packed, isn't it? And in a way, that's a beautiful picture of exactly what he's talking about for Christians. Strangers and exiles, as he says. That's your self-understanding of what this, how you should live in this life. Not too attached to the things you have, the people around you in, in an unhealthy way. Because you actually, this isn't where you belong. We have this expression for people who've grown up in... In different places, they can be called third culture kids. You know, people who've maybe been born here, but grown up there, and their parents are from another place, and they've moved around. And some of the, the aspects of that experience of being a third culture kid is that they, they're not quite sure where they belong. They're not sure who they're for. Don't feel a strong sense of patriotism. Maybe don't feel a strong sense of affinity to a sports team or to institutions. Not sure where to call home. But feel a strong camaraderie and identity with other third culture kids who get what they get. Who get their mind and their understanding and their sense of displacement. Now I know that for many people that's a negative experience. Although it can become beautifully positive when you feel like, oh well the world is my home. But in a way, this is exactly how he's calling us as Christians to live and to feel and to act. A Christian who recognizes that they're a stranger in exile on the earth, this negative aspect is that they they feel, okay, I don't quite belong here. I'm not for all the same things that people around me are for. I don't care or invest as much passion into them. It doesn't, you know, doesn't change my life whether... We leave the European Union to the degree that it's going to either cause me elation or cause me despair. It doesn't totally shake my foundations when, when uh, people around me die or so on. Because this isn't it. This isn't where I belong. And I feel a much stronger sense of affinity with other believers than I do with anyone else in the world. Because other believers get it. I may have never met you. You may be from another culture, a different country. But we both read the same Bible and we both believe in the same God and we're both trusting in the same Savior and we have a a deeper sense of affinity with one another than the family member who doesn't know Jesus. Because we have a third culture. It's not our parents' culture. It's not the culture we grew up in. It's a third culture. It's a heavenly culture. The danger, of course... 
And we think about this negative aspect of what it means to live as a stranger in exile, to turn your back on, on aspects of what it means to live in this world. The danger, of course, is there's always a temptation to return. He talks about it in verse 15 when he says, if they'd been thinking of that land from which they'd gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. I think he's talking about Abraham and Sarah particularly because they'd moved from Mesopotamia, which is quite an advanced civilization. And they'd gone to rural Canaan, which is backwards and ignorant. And Abraham could easily have thought to himself, well, this is pretty rubbish. I'm living in a tent in a backwards country why don't I just go home where I'm recognized and known and loved and I'm a, a kind of, you know, a, a, an accepted member of the community and I can have a house in a civilized, well-governed society. That's a, just a perfect picture of what the temptation is for Christians. When life doesn't work out as you hoped, when all your dreams do not get fulfilled, when you don't get all the joys that you'd longed for, when you, when you find that you experience disappointment, when you experience loss in the Christian life, the temptation is to turn back. We have a picture of that, don't we? When God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot and his wife are leaving Sodom and Gomorrah and God says, don't turn around. And his wife turns around and it says she turned into a pillar of salt. because She stands for all time as an example of what it means to, to regret Leaving the world. You remember how hundreds of years later when Israel, the nation of Israel, is, is redeemed from slavery to the Egyptians. They're the slaves of the Egyptians, building pyramids and working hard to make bricks. And God frees them from slavery, but they have entered this time of wandering around in the wilderness before God brings them into the land of Canaan. And in that wilderness time, they are eating basically the equivalent of like Ritz crackers every day, or Rivitas, even worse. <laughs> and that's their daily diet. Sure, it's got all the nutrients they need because it's a miracle food from heaven, it's manna, but it tastes dry and it's just, it's, it's just boring. Have you ever eaten the same thing, br- breakfast, lunch, and dinner, for, for every day for a, a while? I've done it. When I was in Nepal as a teenager, we had to... I went uh, trekking and we, we'd eat dalbar, which is rice and lentils. And you can have unlimited amounts of dalbar, which is the positive side, but you don't want any more. <laughs> By the time you've eaten it, every day, breakfast, lunch and dinner for a few days, you do not want to smell the stuff anymore. And you just get sick of it. And you can, you know, what happened to the Israelites is they're wandering in the wilderness and they begin to think to themselves, well, weren't we better off in Egypt where we could eat onions and leeks? All that delicious food. And they actually begin to think, they make this stupid equation. They think we were better off as slaves because at least we ate better. And that's like the definition of what we call recall bias. That your memories get skewed as you remember things either better or worse than they actually were. And they think, wow, it was better to be a slave even though they forget that, that slavery meant hard labor, young, dying young, being malnourished and suffering every day. But I think that was better because at least we had some onions and some leeks back there. <laughs> and Christians can have the same thing because actually we can either have a recall bias where we remember our life before we knew Jesus was better. But actually also in some ways you could come to the, the acknowledgement that in some ways it was better. At least you could sin then and actually enjoy it. 
Now when you sin, it's like the, you feel a weight of guilt and frustration and anger with yourself and self-loathing and all this stuff. At least then we could do whatever we want. Sure, we were a slave to our sins, but didn't the onions just taste delicious? And Christians, when they experience in their walk with God, a sense, okay, well, God's not giving me all I hope for, and I experience loss and disappointment and frustration. The temptation is to turn back to the land from which you've come. And you must always maintain that you are a stranger and an exile in this world. You don't belong here. But let me turn it more positively before I close. Positively, it means this. It's living with your heart set upon heaven. He says in verse 14, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. Their life is not lived entirely negatively in terms of where I don't belong. I'm a stranger in exile here. It's lived positively in terms of where I'm heading and all that that means to me. That basic orientation affects all of the decisions that you make in life. It affects whether you're obedient or not to Jesus. It affects how you use and handle and treat the things you own. It affects how you relate to family members. It affects everything because when you think of heaven as your home, everything is pushed through the filter. This is temporary. It doesn't belong to me. It's not permanent. And it's all for the glory of Jesus. I'm investing, I'm investing, I'm investing for eternity. But one of the most powerful things this perspective has is how you face disappointment. A person whose heart is set upon this homeland, heaven, being with God, can face any amount of suffering in life and come through dying in faith. It doesn't destroy them. You can ask these questions. What is it that you can lose that God cannot repay more abundantly? Some of you have experienced deep trauma and pain and loss. Do you not know that it doesn't even begin to compare with what God would lavish upon you in eternity? Or put it this way, what can you miss out on in this life that God won't give back multiplied? Isn't this what Jesus said to his disciples? He says, everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake. So he says, he puts it entirely in terms of loss. You want to be my disciple? Well, it might involve unrelenting loss for you. You have nothing left. But then he says we'll receive a hundredfold and we'll inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Which is to say, if your life is about grabbing everything now, Fulfilling your dreams now. The first will be last. But when Christ is your all, heaven is your home, and you can and may need to turn your back on brothers, sisters, lands, houses, and the whole lot of it. He says the last 
will be first. A hundredfold. This little section closes in Hebrews by telling us how much God has pleasure on this attitude. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. God's not ashamed of people who stake their whole lives on his promises, even when they face unrelenting loss and disappointment in life. He's not ashamed of them. And in fact, he's preparing something better for them. It's what Jesus said when his disciples were about to see him killed. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. This is the night before he was put to death. He says, believe in God. Believe also in me. Why would he say, let not your hearts be troubled? Because they're about to face the biggest disappointment they could ever imagine. Their best friend, their hero, their idol, (laughs) smashed, broken, tortured on a cross. Jesus put to death. And he says, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you, if sorry, if it were, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? He's saying, don't be crushed by what you're about to witness, by this immense disappointment and seeming defeat. I'm going ahead of you because I'm preparing something much much, much better. If you're not a Christian, this life is it. It's as good as it's going to get. And whether you look back on relative success or failure, it's still just it. Who knows what your future will hold? What you'll look back on when you die. You might look back on a life where you think, I did it my way, as everyone says at the funerals. Or you'll look back and think, I messed it up. But whether you feel that you had success or whether you had failure, you've still got to come to the frank acknowledgement, this is it. This is all there is. So everything is dependent on how well you live right now. How much pleasure you get, how much of a mark you make, how well you do it. It's all going to melt away anyway. That's what the scientists tell us, right? So what was the point to begin with? It's all just going to burn up in a great big heat death. That's what, that's what they reckon. <clears throat> it's cheery stuff. Are you prepared for that in your heart? What do you do when you experience crushing defeat and loss and disappointments? Because you will. Everyone does. Everyone you know and love will be gone one day, and, and you will be as well. And the things you build will crumble if this is what your life is about, then ultimately it's going to end and it's all going to melt away into nothing. That's the life without God. Of course, there's worse than that, beyond death. And the Bible gives you the strongest warnings of what it's like to die without making peace, being reconciled with God. I urge you to think about that to do something about that.
But if you're a Christian, the opposite is true. This life is emphatically not it. Your greatest difficulties trusting are likely because you're too much rooted in this world and this life and its successes and joys. And in a sense, there's a kind of a repentance that needs to go on in your heart. A turning back, an ability to say, I'm a stranger in an exile on the earth. God can do with me as he pleases. And in fact, your greatest successes in life may not even be in life. It may rather be in heaven. That your faith can achieve more for God and his kingdom than it does in your small life. You think about Abraham, how his faith continued to work and to achieve way beyond his death. A Christian is someone who comes to a peace in their heart with whatever God allows them to go through here and now because it's the faith that matters. It's the trusting that matters. So I just encourage you, lift up your eyes. When we take the bread and the wine and communion, we are fixing our hearts and minds, our focus upon the most perfect example of what we're talking about. That moment of seeming abject disappointment and defeat, which was in fact the guarantee of an eternity with God for all of us who know and love Jesus. I want to pass out the bread and the wine and I want to encourage you just to come to God and be honest with him. If you've put your heart a little bit too much on the things of this world, finding that person to marry, having the perfect family, buying a home, being successful in your career, having health personally and for those you love, being successful in your work for God. If that's true of you to a degree that it's it's distorting your relationship with God, then I want to urge you to come back and just meditate upon the cross and think how God's way is upside down, isn't it? It's through our suffering. It's through our loss that we most encounter God's wisdom and his grace. And we can also use this moment just to say to God, God, we're available. Do with me as you please. You may need to repent of being too much rooted in this life. Or you may need to pray for God to give you strength to face what's to come. I don't want us to leave here with any sense of dread. The fact is, God only has better for his children. And that's the point. So let's take this prayerfully, meditatively, and with our eyes on Jesus.